I'm Laura Pierpoint, the Director of Early Climate Infrastructure at the Prime Coalition, and this is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. I'm a longtime friend of Emily Kirsch, the host you all know and love, and I'll be filling in for Emily while she spends her time with her family on maternity leave. In 2018, almost 2 million acres of California burned during the state's record-breaking wildfire season. The record was shattered again in 2020 when more than 4 million acres burned across the state. In 2018, the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history, the Camp Fire, was sparked by a faulty transmission line. The fire killed 85 people and spanned more than 150,000 acres in Northern California. Experts say that the fire was exacerbated by unusually high temperatures and wind speeds themselves exacerbated by climate change. This combination of climate change-fueled natural disasters and vulnerable utilities has defined some of the worst natural disasters of the 2020s, from Hurricane Ian to the 2020 wildfire season in California. It's clearer than ever in high-risk areas, above-ground utilities like transmission lines need to be dug underground. We need to invest in undergrounding utilities like power, fiber, water, and sewage to protect communities and their access to energy from worsening disasters. And that's exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Kim Abrams, founder and CEO of Petra, is building. We believe that to fortify our utility infrastructure and keep communities safe, all utilities should be underground. And utilities, uh, whether they be utility companies, whether they be power, water, sewer, or or oil and gas, they want more underground infrastructure, but they haven't been able to bore new utility tunnels because it's too expensive. So we're on a mission to dramatically lower the cost of how we bore utility tunnels. Kim started Petra in 2018 after living through the California wildfires and wondering what she could do to protect vulnerable communities from preventable disasters caused by poorly maintained infrastructure. You know, that's because I think the reality is poor water, sewer, gas, um, electric, communications, infrastructure, when when these fail, uh, you know, they're existential risks to, pe- to people. We have lots of examples of this. We have Paradise, we have Flint, we have Montevideo, uh, which doesn't have access to clean water. We unfortunately have Maui, which uh, just happened recently. Bad infrastructure kills people and breaks communities, families apart. Our infrastructure is breaking. You know, we need to bury all of our critical infrastructure below ground to protect people. Kim realized that the price tag is one of the biggest obstacles to undergrounding utilities. When teams digging trenches or boring tunnels run into unexpected geologies, the project comes to a grinding halt and it can cost vast amounts of money to continue. You know, we've heard of large undergrounding jobs that were budgeted at 100 million and they ended up being 400 million. Um, You know, and this happens almost all of the time, so much so that contractors add contingency fees of 30 to 90 percent of the cost on top of the job. Um, Or they write into their contracts that they can issue change orders if they hit a nasty geology that they didn't anticipate. And this can often double the initial budget for the job. So undergrounding becomes very, very expensive. And we call this the geology tax. Um, And we think that this geology tax is costing utility companies and therefore us, the community members, hundreds of billions of dollars each year. And this is why we have paralysis and inertia in fortifying our grid infrastructure. To tackle the unpredictable and difficult geologies and extreme conditions, Kim and her team developed a robot capable of boring through all geologies. Amongst the manufacturers of boring and trenching equipment, contractors and utility companies, Kim found a niche with Petra, providing the cheapest, fastest, and greenest tunneling service in the utility construction market. I spoke to Kim about what it takes to build a company redefining the trenchless industry. We started with what drove her to begin working in trenchless and her childhood, where she developed her trademark problem-solving ability and thick skin. Awesome. Okay, so let's let's turn to the passion piece of this. What brought you to this work at Petra? You've said a bit about your community forward mission, but... Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of things. It's not just one thing. I think, um, you know, at a macro level, our infrastructure is breaking. You know, we need to bury all of our critical infrastructure below ground to protect people. We have 240,000 water main breaks a year. There are hundreds of communities around the world who have billion dollar 
combined sewer overflow problems where they have to separate out the sewage systems from the storm drain infrastructure. You know, we needed new storm drain infrastructure yesterday to deal with new wetter, wet seasons. <laughs> um, we need to prevent wildfires uh, from being caused by downed power lines, which are downed because of, you know, high winds uh, and increasingly more uh, uh, forceful, virulent storms. So a mixture of things sort of brought me to this work, I would say. I mean, it's just a mixture of abject fear <laughs> for the future of the world. And instead of sitting on the sidelines, I want to do something about it. Um, but then I also think that it's sort of sort of embedded in me personally. You know, I, I sometimes uh, make fun of being forced to go to Catholic schools my whole life. But the one key takeaway and thing that was ingrained in me from going to that uh, to uh, a religious school from an early age was that uh, we should be doing acts of service for others. In fact, I, I, I think a common thread in all Petra employees is that we want to serve others. Um, many of us wake up each day and ask, how do I make my coworkers' lives easier today? And that ethos extends beyond how do I make uh, my coworkers' lives easier to how do I make the world safer? And I think sort of at a also deeper level, my mom has been at the SBA for like 20 years or so building their online disaster recovery platform. So from a very pretty early age, our family conversations have centered around the impact that natural disasters have on quality of life for people. So that probably incepted me from a pretty early, from an earlier age. I love that. What a functional response. That's so great. Yeah. Although you found your way there. So, and made an interesting move after graduating from Fordham when you went to NASA. And so you were there for four years. You also spent some time with Congressman Sherry Bollert as a Brookings legislative fellow. So what did you learn from your early experiences in public service in the government? Yeah. It's, you know, I graduated from Fordham in 2001 without a job. And uh, I went to a temp agency and the temp ag agency placed me uh, in NASA's tech transfer program in at Goddard uh, in Greenbelt, Maryland. And I started off as um, an executive assistant. And then very quickly, within a few months, uh, was promoted to a marketing analyst, marketing specialist. Um, and then I kind of stayed there for a few years. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and marketing... Uh, I think it was called tech transfer specialist, actually, because I don't because they didn't have the term marketing. Um, but, but that's really what it was. I mean, it was really sort of strategic marketing, figuring out go to go to market plans for uh, the technologies that were developed for the space program and then finding folks to either continue to develop those technologies and move them past sort of the innovation gap, as we called it, um, or it was um, to just license it outright to uh, other universities, uh, academia, I mean, I, academia or to, um, you know, companies. And so I did that for many years um, and I really loved it. Um, uh, it really kind of taught me that I could figure out uh, hard, deep tech as a layperson with no engineering background and then ultimately explain those technologies to other lay people. <laughs> uh, which I felt was sort of like, you know, a superpower. Um, and then I went to Capitol Hill uh, through a Brookings Fellowship called the Legis Fellowship. You know, it moved fast for government, but I was pretty quickly realizing that I needed to move faster. It was still too, too slow for me. Um, and in many ways, it sort of cemented that I had to get out of government, to be honest. I felt very stuck for many years um, working for the government and like sort of an actor in a horror film that was uh, pigeonholed. Um, <clears throat> so I ultimately left uh, government. I joined a company um, that was started by a person who I worked with on Capitol Hill, Amy Chang. She's a total badass. She's awesome. I don't know. Maybe she's listening to this podcast. Um, she uh, she started a company in China. I, uh, I joined her and uh, we opened up this office in this company in China. Um, called China Capital Ventures, which ultimately led me into a, a number of sort of, I'd say, entrepreneurial ventures there. We were uh, working with private equity and venture capital firms to help you do diligence on uh, uh, Chinese tech companies. <clears throat> um, and that ultimately that led me to uh, a person uh, uh, named Jeff Towson, who was the head of Asia Pacific Investments at Kingdom Holding. Um, 
and I joined uh, uh, Jeff's team um, at Kingdom Holding and worked for him for about a year and ultimately his boss, Talal uh, Almayman. Um, very, like, Jeff is still probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, it was a really great experience. Um, <clears throat> but I was also competing in a world against kids who had, you know, much fancier degrees from much fancier schools, um, who had internships and jobs at fancy brand, brand name companies. Um, and so I think for many years, you know, I kind of went where gravity pulled me, um, seeking that sort of next escalation in my career and solving problems all along the way. I think one of the things my mom taught me was that um, excellent employees uh, don't complain about a problem they identify a problem, they endeavor to solve it, and they report on the results. Um, and so that was sort of ingrained in me from a very early age. And it's one of our values at my company now. That's awesome. And so you have this set of entrepreneurial experiences that ultimately led you to Ripcord and, and then here. So do you want to say a bit more about what it meant to found several different companies and how that's shaped how you think about Petra? I think for many years... I really suffered from not having the confidence to, uh, to build companies, um, to start companies. And, you know, partly it's, um, it's because of, you know, the, you know, I didn't go to a top school. I didn't have an engineering degree. Um, I kept telling myself I wasn't good enough, um, but also, you know, I was dating this guy too, um, who is a VC and I was, uh, I was, I went back to NASA when I moved from China. Actually, I was in China. Then I went to the Middle East working for Kingdom Holding. And then I met a person, uh, who I fell in love with and that moved me to California. And when I moved back to California, moved back to the U S I went back to NASA and I worked for, um, Chris Kemp, who was, uh, 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 CTO for IT at NASA. And we did really cool things. Like we were, we created this, this, this open, we created OpenStack, which was super awesome. Um, it did lots of really interesting um, partnerships with Google, uh, Microsoft, et cetera. Um, and uh, anyway, I was also doing, um, I was back into sort of my partnerships and tech transfer world, finding homes for innovative deep tech technologies. And I was dating this guy who told me I would never be world class in uh, <laughs> in uh, in tech, and I really internalized that. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this guy! You know, he's met so many founders, and maybe he's right." Um, and you know, but then uh, after we broke up for the first few years, I really wanted to prove him wrong, um, and so. Um, I really wanted to be world-class at fundraising. I really, really wanted to be a world-class founder. What I'm putting world-class sort of in quotes and in, in hand quotes, in uh, finger quotes. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and I, you know, I started to question this whole idea then. After a few years of, you know, like uh, building companies um, and hiring amazing, amazing kids, um, uh, I really started to question this idea of what is world class. Like, did he, did this guy that I date, like, did he meet everybody in the world? Uh, was he world class? No, he wasn't. He was, you know, he was a commodity. <laughs> Should I say that? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and you know, um, and 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 I realized that it was that that was preventing me. Like, it was that like sort of mental block that was preventing me from starting companies. And you know, can you imagine if that was the threshold? for starting a company, you have to be world-class in order to start a company. No, you know, you know, you, you can become world-class, but in the beginning, like you're not going to be world-class. Like, I feel like I'm a world-class problem solver, uh, right now because of all the shit that I went through over the last four years, <laughs> but, but I certainly wasn't world-class four years ago. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the thing that I've learned, um, is that, um, it's really important to have the confidence to just kind of do like roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, start the company that you want to start. Don't listen to other people. 
Well, I love that you that you worked your way through these obstacles because clearly I think you're right that this is a space where having the willingness to learn is just as important as some of these other factors. But let's get a little bit deeper into Petra. So you've mentioned that it's really the California wildfires that inspired you to start Petra. Can you talk a little bit more about that moment that you went from being inspired to deciding that you were going to start the company? It was a really quick moment, to be honest. Um, I mean, I had left, let's see, I had left Ripcord in January and we started incorporated Petra in May. Uh, and we took funding um, after the really bad wildfire seasons in 2018. And, um, you know, we were on our second or third wildfire season by then. Um, and, um, you know, I think in many ways, much to the chagrin of my husband and family, I did not take a break. <laughs> I went straight from one startup to another. Um, and I think that that is testament to me feeling super compelled to solve this problem. Um, I just felt like it was a calling. I mean, I know that sounds cheesy, but it definitely felt like a calling. Um, and, um, yeah. And so I had experience in fundraising. Um, and, and so I wanted, uh, this is my, you know, this is my, my second venture back startup. Um, and I, uh, and I will really want to solve this problem. And I was able to build an early team, um, and, and bring in some, some seed, seed money to, um, to try to test the thesis uh, that we could build new methods to bore through the hardest geologies that nobody else could bore through at the time. And so we raised our, we raised our seed round for seed round at, in the end of uh, 2018. Shivani was one of our first investors, actually. She was um, at Lemnos Labs and she was uh, effectively a, like a VP of engineering, uh, in-house VP of engineering, uh, for, for them. And she would sort of embed herself in the companies that they invested in to, um, to help create sort of processes, structures uh, for managing engineering teams. And so she very quickly kind of became uh, the person in my, in the company who I would call at like, or text at like 12 PM or AM, I should say. Uh, and be like, I have this problem. Can you problem solve this with me? And um, and and so she just started spending more and more time with us. This was very early on, like seed stage. So she just started spending more and more time with us um, and problem solving. She very quickly became my ride or die. And um, and so uh, so I made her a co-founder. Um, I wouldn't be able to have I wouldn't have been able to build this company without her. Um she is, she was our first VP of engineering. She is now our chief product officer. She is an engineer. She um, welds in her spare time. She's actually in the shop right now, uh, welding with the, uh, with the fabricators. She has a mechatronics master's from uh, Stanford. Um, and she's the type of person who I think, like me, likes to really demystify problems and investigate and go deep into things that she doesn't understand. Uh, she takes it many steps further in that uh, she is much more technical <laughs> than me. And she reads uh, all the technical literature. And so she was the one who, um, who really sort of designed and came up with some of our early prototypes. Um, and set us on this course of uh, solving some of the hard geologies with new novel cutter heads. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, she's just, she's just great. Uh, so I wouldn't be able to do this without her. She's my ride or die. She's in the room right next to me right now. She's also a super badass and she's a DJ on the side and she is about to um, do, she's like one of those people by the way, she's one of those people who's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of talented at this. I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. And then she goes uh, into DJing and now she's opening for Shaq, <laughs> DJ Diesel, <laughs> for outside lands uh, within like a year of getting into DJing. <laughs> I think I think we need a whole other podcast for people and energy and the cool things that they moonlight doing <laughs> because this is awesome. <laughs> 
Coming up, Kim talks about the early days of building Petra. But first, a word from our sponsor. What It Takes is brought to you by SPAN, makers of the award-winning SPAN panel, a smart electrical panel that enhances how homeowners interact with their energy. SPAN has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world, backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience from Tesla, Sunrun, and Google Next. Emily had SPAN founder and CEO Arch Rao on What It Takes last year for a great conversation about the future of residential energy. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy-efficient upgrades to your home, like a heat pump? Wired recommends SPAN panel as a borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel, almost essential if you have a backup battery. SPAN was recently top five in Forbes 2023 list of America's best startup employers and just closed a $96 million series B2 funding round, bringing total funding to date to $231 million. Interested in advancing your career at one of the premier companies in climate technology or getting SPAN installed in your home? Visit span.io to learn more. Um, Okay, let's talk for a second then. Early stages, you're building Petra. How did you originally size the market? And really here we're talking about multiple markets, right? Because you have a lot of passionate Petra around solving electricity challenges, like in the electric utility industry, but there's also water and sewer utilities. So can you say a bit about what you were thinking about kind of market sizing and market entry around those opportunities? Yeah. Um, So, you know, the market is very large. Um, in fact, it's so large, I didn't really believe it when I started getting into it. And you don't really think that it's as large as it is because so much of it is invisible. Uh, it's below ground. And so it doesn't, you know, like when you think of the car industry, you're like, oh, that must be a massive market because you see cars all around. Um, you don't see water and sewer tunnels um, all over the place, obviously. Um, and so, yeah. So how we started sizing the market, we looked at, you know, I'd say the TAMs of uh, s- some of these different industries. We Again, like, we, uh, let me just go back and say we have a single tool. It addresses multiple markets, multiple diameters through all geologies um, and uh, and therefore multiple use cases. We're doing the core of our business right now is in water and sewer. Um we're doing some of those combined sewer overflow separation projects. We're doing utility relocation uh, projects for uh, subway systems. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and we just started getting into uh, the, power, the power market, uh, undergrounding uh, transmission distribution lines. So um, we're also, uh, we also do uh, natural gas. So we just won a PG&E job, our first PG&E job, uh, uh, to uh, to bore a um, a natural gas uh, uh, tunnel underneath 280, so that's coming up. We're pretty excited about that, um, and that's sort of our foot in the door with PG&E. But let me get back to the market. Um, so the market is uh, very large uh, right now today uh, for water and sewer. Uh, they're each around a trillion uh, dollar markets over the next ten years. Uh, we're going to have to uh, overhaul a lot of this infrastructure. We have 240,000 water main breaks a year. Uh, we have a whole bunch of, uh, of water conduits that are still made of like wood. Um, and so a lot of that is going to have to be replaced. Uh, and the pipeline rehabilitation market is alone is like a $66 billion market. Um, uh, we have two modules that do pipeline rehabilitation with our tools, uh, with our, with our multi-tool. Um, and so, uh, so to, to multiple, to, you know, multiple trillion dollar market of which in water and sewer, 70% of that market is excavation. And that's what we do. We excavate the ground. Um, so very, very large sizes. The majority of that, like say 70% of that excavation is through trenching. Um, and so in around 30% is, is trenchless. Trenchless is starting to start, like it's starting to get specified on jobs because it is easier for communities uh, when you don't have to stop traffic, when you don't have to reroute it, when you don't have to uh, haul away all of the extra spoils uh, that you're digging up. But, uh, but in general, right now, it's around you know, 30% of the, uh, the excavation portion of the water and sewer construction 
market. <clears throat> um, and we're trying to increase that, right? So by lowering the cost to compete with trenching, um, we are trying to go from, you know, 30% of that multi-trillion dollar market to 40 to 50. Um, and um, yeah, and, 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 and we think that in order to do that, you have to drive down the cost um, incrementally, right? Like, you know, I love the level of ambition there. That's so awesome. So in this early period, you interviewed close to 200 people to understand more about this market and this space. Can you talk about who you interviewed and what you learned? Yeah. I mean, I think I learned a lot about the incentive structures that I just mentioned by interviewing lots of folks. Um, I mean, I would I would do things like stop on the side of the road if I saw um, a trenching or trenchless operation. Um talk to the foreman, talk to the folks, what's their biggest challenge? Have they encountered any issues? Um, how long was it taking? I spoke to and um, have on our advisory board uh, presidents of former presidents of utility companies, uh, somebody who is at, uh, used to be at the California Public Utilities Commission, and that sort of helped demystify uh, how utility companies think about building out their grid infrastructure and you know the cost plus uh, uh, a structure of how they make money. Uh, they get a markup. They basically are able to charge a markup on all of their construction costs. Um, and then they divide that by the number of people. Um, uh, and that's how we get our base rate numbers. So kind of learned that, uh, the, at the end of the day, their customer, if you will, is the public utilities commissions. <laughs> um, and, uh, learned a lot about, uh, the uh, engineering firms, so, so the civil engineering firms, are the folks who are designing these networks, uh, and um, and they're also the ones who many in you know many ways are just are determining the uh, the tool that should be used, um, and then all of the sort of ancillary folks. Like for example, any time somebody needs to bore a tunnel, utility tunnel underneath the highway, you have to deal in California. You have to deal with Caltrans. Um, and so Caltrans has, you know, their specifications and their requirements because you can't have subsidence on 280 or underneath a rail line uh, <clears throat> if, uh, you know, if you're going to be boring underneath it. You can't let the, the above ground infrastructure subside. Um, <clears throat> that's a major problem. So kind of learned all of, you know, all about the different players. Um, and that was ultimately one of the things that led us, that investigation is what led us to, to, come up with this new business model of, uh, in the industry at least, of vertically integrating um, and building our own trenchless technologies, uh, manufacturing it, and then providing a service, um, a construction service. So at this stage, you're early on, and then you raised a pre-seed and a seed round totaling $6 million, and then two Series A rounds totaling $39 million from a number of investors. Can you tell us about the process of raising while you were still in stealth mode and what that funding enabled you to do? Raising in stealth mode wasn't actually that hard. Uh, hiring was hard in stealth mode. Um, but we were fortunate at the time to be raising in a pretty frothy environment, um, so we raised a pre-seed and seed round um, totaling $6 million. Uh, we pretty quickly got some, um, some well-known VCs in deep tech. Um, we raised two Series A's uh, totaling $39 million from a number of investors, um, first in 2018 and then a, a, another one last year. We've had you know a few party rounds uh, with all sort of the the big hitters, uh, folks who, you know, really have supported us, uh, over the years, uh, Acme, Congruent, uh, DCVC, Valor, Real Ventures in Canada, um, 8VC, Alumni Ventures, um, in the most recent round last year, uh, we brought in Republic, Angels, um, pretty early on, we had, uh, TechFent Ventures, uh, which was actually also really helpful because they're in construction. They're, Tech fed, they're the venture arm of a, a construction conglomerate in Europe, um, and they uh, they specialize in um, in utility infrastructure. <laughs> so they've been really helpful. Um, <clears throat> Adrian Fenty and Mac Ventures, who's been super uh, super supportive as well. So um, we have a we have a we have a nice roster of investors um, 
uh, who believe in us and we're pretty excited uh, to continue to work with them. So tell us more about what is a multi-geology tool? What is the special sauce that Petra is bringing to the technology? Well, there's, you know, there's, there's a bunch of like special things about the tech. Um, We have 10 patent families, 30 patents. We have a number of different breakthroughs um, that we've brought to the market. uh, Features that are really like benefiting the customer uh, and uh, helping us de-risk the uh, the undergrounding jobs that we're on. Um, uh, for example, um, you know, we have, I say, let's, let's start with the core. The core is we've got a multi-tool, uh, robot that has swappable boring modules, uh, that you swap in. It takes about 15 minutes to swap it in depending on the geology that you encounter. And this is like, this is really at the heart, like the game changing thing. Um, uh, and the reason why it's so game changing is because conventional, we basically have compressed all like the entire product line at other manufacturers into a singular tool. And, uh, and, you know, when we show off the tool, for example, we'll take people to a construction yard, uh, and we'll show them all of the tools that take up an entire yard that we replace with a singular machine. So that really at its core is, is the, is the, is the secret sauce. Um, we came out of R&D with that last year. Uh, we uh, kind of debugged it and uh, troubleshooted it on jobs, paid jobs in Bogota. Uh, it was just a lot easier for us to get flight time uh, in Bogota on real jobs. And we entered the U.S. market uh, in March, April, in Q2, beginning of Q2 of this year. And now we are sort of booked out and oversubscribed with our uh, first first few uh, commercial products. The other things I would say um, that are really interesting that I really love, um, because we're providing a service, we care a lot about the safety of the crew that's operating these machines. So we have all of these safety features that we've built in. Um, We also took um, uh, the, uh, the emissions, if you will, out of the pit. So we have a pitch, pit launch system. It's a jack and bore system. It installs the pipe while we're excavating the ground. Um, this is a whole subset of, of the trenchless industry called the jack and bore uh, uh, methodology. And so often you dig these pits and then you have people inside of the pit and you've got, you know, these diesel engines that are emitting diesel fumes and you have to, you know, you have to vent it out uh, and people get headaches, they get diesel headaches. And so uh, what we did uh, was we took the power system uh, and we moved it above ground. We made it electric over hydraulic. It is electrified. We can power it with any number of sources available to us with diesel, biodiesel. We're testing with biodiesel right now. Uh, We could hook it into the grid. Depending on the module that we're using, we can uh, use less horsepower. Uh, And so when we're using, say, like 40 horsepower, we could power it with uh, battery packs or multiple battery packs. Uh, uh, I really want the mega pack. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, we did that because we care not only about the environment, but we also care about the safety of our team. We have anti-rollover features. We have e-stops. We also built our own software system uh, and our own operating system to be able to control uh, all the different modules. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's 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 patents on uh, two different, uh, totally novel new excavation uh, modules. Uh, one is a hard rock module, which is what we launched to the market with in 2021. Um, And another one is what we call the assisted dynamic boring module, which is really good in sand and high water table, unconsolidated ground. Um, And um, yeah, and so, you know, there's just, it's just a totally fresh, like new way of thinking about this market. And we just came in and we said, all right, we've got a bunch of aerospace engineers. We've got a bunch of geotechs. We've got trenchless tech folks. uh, And, you know, we've got a a bunch of robotics, uh, mechatronics engineers, uh, software engineers. How do we rethink the, the problem? And how do we design something to solve the end goal of of getting to $200 per linear, under $200 per linear foot for a wide variety of geologies, for a wide variety of diameters. 
I really love how in answering this question, you really drew the technology box wide, including all of your safety systems and power systems in addition to the core elements of the technology. So that's awesome. One more question though about the core technology side, you had a bit of a pivot. So you started off with a plasma torch technology and wound up with a jet engine. So describe that journey. Um, so we started with plasma because we had this thesis that plasma would be able to vaporize everything uh, in its path. Um, we, we had a, a paper uh, from uh, Cal, uh, from a professor at Cal that said, yeah, you could vaporize anything that plasma comes in contact with. Um, and that was because, you know, the mission from day one was to build a universal trenchless tunneling method that can get through all geologies. And we just thought, okay, wouldn't it be great if we just had one cutter head that could get through everything? And we spent a lot of, I'd say the first year and a half, two years, really testing plasma on like every geology we could get our hands on. We did 13 different uh, hard rock geologies. We tried it on all the soft geologies. And unfortunately, in practice, it ended up liquefying, <laughs> as you could imagine, most of the rock we wanted to go through. Um, uh, you know, we were creating lots of lava. Um, and the other thing was that it hardened uh, after, uh, you know, it hardened into this very impermeable glassified layer uh, that then made it even harder to excavate even further. Um, and so in order to excavate after you created lava, after it hardened uh, into, you know, a glassified impermeable layer, you then needed more power to be able to excavate. Um, and so we were, I think we were doing like 250 gallons of, we were going through 250,000, sorry, 250 gallons of diesel fuel an hour, um, which was a lot. It is not <laughs> what we uh, we set out to do, we set out to uh, to basically um, use just the right amount of energy to excavate the ground in the cheapest possible way. And so, uh, but in pursuing plasma, what we realized is that there is a sort of an underlying phenomenon that we're trying to drive called thermal spallation, and that plasma was. Uh, insufficient for driving thermal spallation. And so we realized that it was kind of like bringing a bazooka to a spoon fight. It also was like really clunky. The uh, supply chain was horrible. It took like 18 months to 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 get components. Um, uh, it, it, I think it was taking up like 15,000 square feet. Um, and so it just was a real pain in the butt. Um, but once, but what we realized is that to drive thermal spallation with a non-contact method, um, we really needed to uh, uh, drive two things. We need to. We had basically two ingredients to this. You have to have high mass flow and just the right amount of temperature to uh, to basically break apart, apart the component lithologies um, uh, within a hard rock. <clears throat> and so, the tool, the the method that we landed on was jet engine. Uh, you know, smaller jet engines, hobby jet engines. Um, and that allowed us to not only switch to uh, biodiesel, it also allowed us to um, uh, reduce our uh, fuel consumption when we are using the hard rock module to like 20 to 30 gallons an hour, um, uh, depending on uh, uh, just a bunch of different variables. But then it also allowed us to software define uh, our system as well. And so we're able to control it now all remotely, uh, which led to about two years ago, the foundation of us building our Petra operating system, which now controls the, the, the robot. So you're solving technology problems, and then your first customers are general contractors in Latin America. Why did you start with selling to contractors rather than utilities, and why Latin America? So our customers are mostly GCs. Their customers are the project owners, who are like the utility companies, like power companies, water, sewer authorities, private developers, and, you know, like large companies, Tesla example, uh, for example, who are building uh, campuses or infrastructure that needs to be underground. Um, and we landed our first customers in Latin America because our CTO um, had uh, experience there. He was not only a designer of trenchless technologies, but he also 
um, was the head of trenchless construction at a large construction company in Bogota. And what that allowed us to do is to troubleshoot our tech and to perfect it um, on real jobs. We kind of needed customers and uh, GCs breathing down our neck to really sort of, you know, uh, unpack um, and, and troubleshoot everything uh, that we expected to encounter in the North American market. Um, so um, in construction, it's actually kind of interesting. I mean, in construction, especially in civil construction with customers, especially who are regulated utilities serving communities, they don't like deploying new technology to jobs because it's too risky. Um, and so uh, what they do in the United States with these, you know, what the utility companies will often do is they'll do like one to two years of piloting, right? So you'll pilot the tech. Um, it takes uh, three years often to one to three years to get a pilot. And I know this because I tried for three years unsuccessfully to get a pilot with a few utility companies back in the day. Um, and that's too long. I mean, we really needed to test this, get flight time, troubleshoot it. Um, and we need to do it in a scrappy way. Um, and the most weighted criteria item on an RFP for boring a utility tunnel is past experience. In order to win the job, you have to have done the job in the past with the means and methods specified for that job. Um, and so that kind of creates this chicken and egg problem. You have to have done the job in the past to win the job in the future. So that, you know, that I'd say um, was the driving force between uh, yeah, the driving force for building out a construction company in Latin America. So that was the driving force for us to create a construction company to get on actual jobs in, in Latin America. And it's been really, really great for us because what it did was it uh, uh, helped us gain the confidence of customers. Um, it allowed us to have uh, project data to complete projects with our tech. Um, we now have tech that's been approved by third parties. Um, we now have tech that has been uh, approved by trenchless societies, uh, governing boards for the trenchless industry. Um, <clears throat> we've now uh, in Latin America and getting known or becoming known as the guys who rescue projects. <laughs> we've actually rescued stuck machines in the ground. Um, we're doing jobs that nobody else wants to take in difficult ground conditions, and we're successfully completing them without change orders. Um, and uh, and so having sort of the these bona fides now allows us to go uh, confidently into the U.S. market. Um, and the outcome has been that we entered the market in April. We started doing roadshows for construction workers, I mean, for uh, contractors. Uh, we started bidding with them on jobs in the United States. Um, and uh, now we've won every single job that we've been on. And now we're having to turn down work. And so um, it's, a, it's a good problem to have, I guess. But it's also um, we wouldn't have been able to do this had we not had a construction company uh, an operation in, in Colombia. Okay. So one more unusual move after your series A, you actually acquired a trenchless innovation company called Zilper. So tell us about that process and your decision to acquire them. Acquiring Zilper was probably the best decision I've ever made <laughs> aside from marrying my husband. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously marrying my husband and having my kid. Um, so um, acquiring them allowed us to enter the trenchless market much, much faster. When we first started this company, we were like, okay, we have to build something that could get through all geologies. We're going to start with the hardest geologies first, which is hard abrasive rock. We built a hard rock module. Um, and then we were like, all right, we're just going to systematically create it. You know, we're going to create this menu of difficult geologies and we're going to sort of like check off the box with each uh each geology, every fundraising round. Um, and this was at a time when, uh, you know, venture money was a commodity and it was easy to get. And I'm so glad I did not go that path because what we ended up doing was we ended up acquiring Silver. They're the only other trenchless startup in the world. <laughs> we like scoured the world for another trenchless startup. We, we, uh, we found them. One of uh, our investors pointed us to them. Uh, we became friends with them before and started to get to know them before we made an offer to acquire them. 
And they had sort of the same thesis that we had, which was, but they were just going about it a different way. So they were like, we want to be able to solve the geology problem in trenchless in uh, high water tables, sandy environments, uh, places that have mud and unconsolidated ground because we want to go after the coasts and we want to underground utilities uh, in hurricane prone areas. And our thesis was obviously we need to be able to go through everything. But right now we're starting with a hard rock method that can bore utility tunnels in uh, wildfire prone areas. And so when we combined the two companies, we were able then, and the technologies, we were able then with our singular tool, uh, address the entire market, including the, uh, the, I'd say the newer markets that are coming up uh, that require us to go into these geological conditions that we never had to go into before, like hard rock because of wildfires and because we're boring in areas that are mountainous and wind windy, um, uh, allows us to now go into the, you know, into the coasts, uh, Florida coasts, uh, the Eastern seaboard where they're, um, you know, pummeled by hurricanes all the time. So anyway, so it, the combination of the two technologies really allowed us to enter the market much faster um, and I think in many ways, uh, you know, not being able to develop a technology and provide a solution that the market wants fast enough uh, is a kiss of death for most companies. And so thankfully, uh, we were able to, because of them, combine the tech and enter the market um, late, last, late last year, early this year. That's great. So let's talk about what you've learned throughout this journey. How many people are on your team today? And what have you learned about hiring since starting to build a team at Petra? Um, we've got 72 people across uh, the United States and, uh, and Bogota and Canada. Um, we have our R&D operation here in the United States, our manufacturing operation in Bogota, um, and our construction division uh, is well underway in Bogota. We just started. Uh, we just entered the U.S. market with our with our service, um, and so we have a construction team here that we're growing organically. Um, that's based here. Um, it's led by Roberto, who is our CTO, but is also uh, a former head of construction. Um, and we're we're about to uh, make an offer on um, a. Uh, a construction leader, if you will, uh, we're very excited about who has three, uh, who's third generation trenchless. Um, and he's very, I'm very excited about him, but, um, but yeah, so we just, can I just unpack that one? When you say third generation trenchless, you mean he was a third generation in his family to work on trenchless? Like that's mind boggling. Okay. Just making sure I understood what that, that phrase meant. Yeah, exactly. If you can hone in on what you learned about hiring, that would be awesome. You know, and what I've learned about hiring since I started building the team is, um, you know, we have this great team now, um, but I'd say for the first four years, maybe three years, three and a half years, I was a wartime CEO. Um, and that was because, uh, you know, we just, we just had a whole bunch of issues in the early days. Uh, we had uh, an early employee who embezzled money. Um, we had, um, you know, some, some issues with folks who were getting, you know, physical and fighting with each other. Um, and, um, and I think that in many ways, my radar was off for whatever reason. Um, one of the things that I like about Shivani is that now, you know, we really hire for uh, culture fit in the sense that they have to be good humans. Uh, if they are, you know, like the brilliant jerks and that brilliant, like they have to also deliver. Uh, and I've yet to meet a brilliant jerk who delivers. <laughs> um, the other thing that I would say is that what we're doing is so unique. I mean, we have to build the unicorns in our, you know, nobody, nobody is an expert in uh, in trenchless technology. The one expert that we know in tr building trenchless technologies at a startup, I should say, uh, we acquired them. And so everybody else, we just had to kind of train on the job. Um, we've taken folks from other disciplines and we've um, brought them up to speed and, uh, and, and, um, and educated them on the trenchless industry. And so, um, you know, it's because we're doing something totally new. So 
Um, and that requires a lot of humility and it requires accepting that you don't know everything. And so I think that we kind of made a mistake early on. And the thing that I would say I learned the most about hiring, especially engineers, um, is that you can't hire narcissists to build technology. I actually, going back to the thing that I said earlier about when I'm afraid of something or when I encounter something that I'm, that I'm afraid of, I really dig into uh, and try to demystify uh, what that problem is. And so what I ended up doing about two years ago is I took a, a class that was effectively a mini master's degree in psychology. And I read a book called um, a Psychoanalytic Diagnosis by Nancy McWilliams <laughs> that helped me uh, really understand the different personality types. And what I realized was that we just kept running into the same pattern, often honestly because of me and because of my childhood and because of my past, of hiring the same sort of pattern of person. And we hire for humility. Petra has two women co-founders and your board is majority women. So that's a huge deal here in the tech world. Still, you know, very white, very male dominated. But you're also very much part of the construction industry. And this is an industry with a very different level of socioeconomic and racial diversity. So how are you as an as a founder really navigating both of those very different worlds? But you know, as as a woman-led team and as a majority Latino company. Um, to be honest, it hasn't been easy navigating deep tech. Um, I will say it's been surprisingly easy navigating construction as a female-led team and as a you know, dominant Latino company. Um, and here's my read on why. Construction is a meritocracy to some degree in that if you could do the job, you get to keep your job and then you get more jobs. Of course, there's a healthy level of suspicion to any newcomer in the industry, and they're sort of famously slow to adopt new technologies. But once you prove yourself, then you're respected. Um, and ultimately, I think decisions in civil construction are data-driven at its core. You win bids based on costing data. You get new jobs based on whether you did past jobs on time and at or under budget. If you have delays, you often have data on what caused those delays. So pattern matching is actually a bit easier in construction, we're finding. Um, we're also, by the way, solving a problem for the industry that they have had, and therefore we're getting opportunities that others in this space haven't been afforded. Um, you know, we're winning 100% of the jobs we're bidding on. We're getting on jobs that are critically important to multiple governments. Um, you know, we're finding fit for our product with the, with the construction industry. But our experience with the investment deep tech community has been different, especially now in a down market. Um, and we find that, you know, ultimately VC investors which I have empathy for, make emotional decisions based on pattern matching with fuzzy data points, especially in the early days when you don't have product, uh, when you don't have a lot of data. Um, and so they rely on sort of fuzzy data points like gender or, um, uh, you know, whether or not uh, people with the backgrounds that we have have been successful in the past running deep tech companies. Um, you know, have we... Yeah, they, they, they ask questions like have them, themselves, have they ever seen Latinos successfully running manufacturing divisions, women running manufacturing divisions? Um, and so, you know, I think to some degree, we, with the investment community, especially the VC investment community, are sort of not, uh, we're discounted um, consistently. Um, and, you know, and I think just as a side note, like those of us at Petra are, impossible to pattern match. <laughs> There's never been a company like ours run by women, run by Latinos in deep tech, in construction with a multitude of backgrounds in an industry that doesn't have schools dedicated to its study. You can't, I mean, there's like three schools or four schools globally that have a curriculum in trenchless. Um, so we're in many ways creating our own unicorns. Yeah, 80% of the conversations we have with VCs presuppose and assume we haven't done the things we've done. And I think that's because it's unbelievable to them. And so I think, you know, the struggle that we have is that we are consistently misunderstood. <laughs> and, um, and I think this pattern matching is counter to innovation uh, because you can't find alpha if you're consistently pattern matching. 
Here in California, there's a big debate about whether we should devote our resources to forest and vegetation management versus other approaches to wildfire prevention and mitigation. And that includes undergrounding a transmission infrastructure. So what's your take on how Petra's solution fits into this bigger constellation of options for wildfire management? I mean, I think, look, the reality is that PG&E is a leader in this uh, because they have committed to undergrounding uh, 10,000 circuit miles. They're going to be spending a billion dollars a year uh, for the next 10 years, possibly more. I would probably, I think, uh, I, I, hopefully if they use us, it'll be less. But, uh, but you know, they're going to be spending a lot of money on undergrounding uh, power lines in these high-risk areas. And uh, so the reality is, is that um, they are uh, committing to undergrounding. The customer, there are end customer, they are committing to undergrounding. They are moving, I'd say, a lot of their budget, from what I've heard, away from vegetation management, which is an ongoing thing, right? It's an on, you have to, you have to maintain the vegetation uh, you have to mow and clear land uh, every, you know, every few years. Um, and so it's an ongoing commitment versus, say, a much more permanent solution of burying the power lines in these high risk areas. And really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is lower the cost so that, you know, so dramatically that um, that it's a no brainer to underground. Um, and that it doesn't become a, you know, a big debate point. You know, the entire asset cost of above ground infrastructure between uh, maintenance of the lines, uh, the increased maintenance of the lines, the risk then as well of it falling down. Um, and then obviously the cost of dealing with the, uh, the, the things that happen to these lines when you have wildfires, uh, they fall down, they start wildfires, or they fall down during hurricanes, um, and whole communities are, are, are you know, they go dark. Um, the cost of that is just kind of too great. Um, and that, I think, adds to the cost of building above ground infrastructure that is often hidden. Fair enough. All right, Kim, it's time for us to turn to the high voltage round. So, all right, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Uh, they get to market with their product or service too slow. They don't find product market fit. Um, they uh, don't have leaders who get their hands dirty. There's just so many. Um, uh, they don't take enough risks. They take too many risks. They run out of capital in a down market. They're valued too high. Um, you know, startups are hard. Uh, you have to identify all the risks, see around the corners and mitigate them every day, uh, all day, 24-7, and bang your head up against the wall. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. <laughs> if you really knew me, you would know. I'm pretty funny and have a dirty sense of humor with my closest friends. Success is? Uh, yours to define. Take that. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Uh, I would have bootstrapped Petra in the early days, and I would have done that by ex by buying existing cash flow positive trenchless contractors first, and then improving and building, uh, you know, w with customers already. I would have bought then built. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be that I try to keep communities safe from disasters. I'm most proud of my child. He's awesome. Amazing. And finally, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Grit, good execution, and luck, which can be manufactured if you can see around corners. But grit, good execution, and a little bit of luck, or maybe a lot bit of luck. <laughs> yeah, I love that answer. Kim, it has been absolutely awesome talking to you today about Petra. I've learned a ton. Thank you so much for joining What It Takes. Oh, thanks for having me. Kim Abrams is the founder and CEO of Petra. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd like to thank What It Takes listener 2020 Elaine 
who said that what it takes is her place to learn about climate tech and the people who have started a business to improve the planet and our lives on it. Always interesting and fast-paced. Thanks, Elaine. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them fund, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund and follow Powerhouse on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. You can find me on LinkedIn. Whether you're a first-time or a long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review and read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who might like this episode, please send them the link. Isabel Lee and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Brenda Hernandez is our podcast producer. I'm Lara Pierpoint, filling in for Emily Kirsch, and this is What It Takes.